name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one Amen. Thanks for coming today. We are uh, going to the pointy end of our uh, four slash five uh, series discussion about what I think that are things that man cannot live without. Man or so I feel that every single person in his life is searching for these five things. And these five things are not fully fulfilled except in Christ. And the way Christianity especially Orthodox Christianity, fulfill these five things surpasses anything that the world can offer or philosophy can offer or any other religion can offer or any denomination can offer. So we are talking about the fullness of life that Christ is to offer that sometimes we miss because sometimes we are um, distracted by paraphernalia distracted sometimes by tradition, misguided, wrong perception of what the church is telling us, sometimes we miss this fullness of life. So we talked about man's search for meaning, and we said that, we established that we all search for meaning, and we know that life is not livable unless every single one of us have a meaning in his life. And there's two ways to have meaning. Either you can create your own meaning, say, okay, the meaning of my life will be looking after my family. The meaning of my life will be doing some altruistic thing. The meaning of my life will be um, doing some humanitarian work. This is going to be the meaning of my life. And we established that this created meaning is going to face two major obstacles. The obstacle of rationality, because this meaning that you are creating is not going to ever be a long-lasting meaning. It's going to change because your convictions and your ideations always change. And we also said that this creative meaning will never be durable, will never be able to stand the test of suffering. Once you have a certain type of suffering, if you are living for your family and you suffer from them, then the meaning of your life will be demolished. If you're living for a humanitarian work and this humanitarian work kind of ends up not showing gratitude, then your meaning will be demolished. And we came to the conclusion that the only meaning of life that will be durable and rational will be a meaning of life that is beyond this world, that will stand the suffering and the rational tests. And we talked also about the fulfillment of life. And we said that every single one of us is seeking fulfillment, seeking satisfaction. And often, whether we know it or not, we are leading a life of monotonous, repeated, efforts looking for filling of this emptiness. We said every single one of us has got this emptiness inside. And if you remember this caption that I, saw, I showed you last time from C.K. Lewis where he said that he was driving and he felt this emptiness inside that every single one of us has. And this is something that every single one of us does have. Whether we feel it now or we will feel it when our kids leave home or we feel it now or we feel it when we do not succeed in something that we had all our money put on. We feel it now, we're going to feel it when we fail in a quest or fail in some kind of university degree or we fail in a certain relationship. But eventually, this emptiness, this void inside, 
is there. It's inside every single one of us. And this void is because the only natural state of fulfillment that we were created for is for continuous connection with Christ. And once we separate from Christ when our nature fell and got corrupted is this emptiness that needs to be filled and only can be filled with a transcendent fulfilling being that can retain us or regain us the status that we all miss. This state of fulfillment. This state of fulfilled vocation. And we said that uh, uh, Father Thomas Hopkins says that every single one of us has got a vocation in life, whether you're going to be um, a priest or uh, a civilian, or you're going to be uh, um, uh, celibate or married, you're going to be um, doing something intellectual or doing something uh, physical, you're going to be kind of living an easy life, going to be a life full of suffering, but every single one has a vocation. And your fulfillment will be by fulfilling this vocation. And this vocation is to become one with Christ. And although that every single one of us has a vocation, has a calling, has been created for a certain purpose, and you will not feel fulfilled unless you fulfill this vocation, but every single one of us has been created for the same calling. The same calling is for us all to be saints. Every single one of us has been created on the image and likeness of God. And the calling is for us all to be saints because we are created on His image and likeness. And every single one of us has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. And that's why we've got the potential to become saints. But even though that every single one of us has a vocation, and every single one of us has the same vocation, becoming saints, but every single one of us has a unique vocation where every saint will have a certain light, a certain um, effect, a certain blessing, whether the saint will be uh, a married saint or uh, a celibate saint, it will be a monk, or it will be a priest, it can be a thinker, it can be a doer, it can be a servant, it can be uh, a mother or father. Every single saint has got his flavor, has got his call. And the final thing we said last time is why, despite the fact that we believed, at least on a mental level, intellectual level, that as Christians, Orthodox, in church, having communion, partaking from the body and blood of Christ, even though we all have, know that we can only be fulfilled in Christ, in the church, living a sacramental life, but we still have this emptiness. And we came to the conclusion together is that the reason that we're still unfulfilled is that we are not empty enough. And we talked about the story of Elisha and the pots and the oil, and we said that the reason that the oil stopped, the reason that sometimes we don't get enough Holy Spirit filling us, of course we all have enough, but it's not fired up inside us, it's not filling us up, it's not active in us, is the fact that we come to church, we come to Christ, we come to meeting, we come to Abbea, and we are not really empty. We are not really desperate to be filled. We come because we want to be holier, or righteouser, if there is such a word, or uh, feel good more about ourselves, feel that we are doing the right things, we want to fulfill every righteousness. We don't fall on our knees and pray to God, thank you for all of that, but despite all of that, I need you, I need you badly, and I'm so empty without you, my life means nothing without being filled by you. We come with a bit of a religious approach rather than a desperate approach. Today we're going to talk about the third need for every single one of us, which is we need to know who we are. We need to have an identity. So I'll tell you about a story 
that I love. But before I tell you the story, I want to read you this uh, bit from Jeremiah that we all know. It's the potter's house. I'm, I'm sure we all have seen this uh, um, photo many, many times. It's the story where Jeremiah, God is talking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred with his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And glory be to the Holy Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they want to discuss together what's identity. What does it mean to have an identity? What does it mean when you ask yourself, who am I? What do I stand for? So I always go back to this story, which I think fits nicely, and I like it, and I say it very often. So you probably heard it from me before, if you ever heard me talking, because I use this story very often. The story that I heard um, uh, when I was a kid, and it's still in my mind, it's the story of Goha. Goha is the, the funny uh, philosopher coming from the Turkish slash uh, Persian, but we claim him as an Egyptian, um, as we do with the Falafel and the Beatles. Um, we claim him to be ours. So the story goes like that, that Goha was sitting down um, on an evening, just like today, um, a bit hot, but now it's coming, uh, the sun is coming down, nice cool breeze, and uh, he's sitting on a nice kind of shade banana type of thing, and uh, some kids come to, to uh, in front of his house and start play, playing soccer, and of course Goha is very, very annoyed um, that his serenity is uh, destroyed. So he starts thinking, what can I do? What can I do if I shush him away? They will not listen. So he thinks, okay, hey, boys, girls, uh, have you heard that there is a wedding at the end of the street? So, no, what are you talking about? There was nothing about it. No, nobody heard of anything like that. So, no, there is a wedding at the beginning of the street. And there is Rosebladen, uh, and there is Konefa, and there is Mahshi, and there's all these good stuff. How come you haven't heard? Everybody in the village knows about it. He said, really? He said, I'll go. It's, a, it's starting now. You're not going to have any food left. So all the boys and girls, they run and they just uh, leave the soccer ball because they want to eat from the banquet. So he starts uh, um, relaxing again and the sun is setting and the birds start chirping again um, and the dust is starting to settle down and starting to sit on the shade right now. And, um, and then some boys and girls come and find the soccer ball there. So this is a beautiful area. Let's play soccer. And they start playing again. And he's um, hey, boys and girls, haven't you seen your friends just running up uh, the hill there? He said, no, we haven't. And it's there, if you look, they see. What have we got to do with any of that? They are running to attend this banquet that is for free. Everybody is invited. There is Rosa Blevin, there is Bilala, there is Kunefa, there is all these things. Said, are you for real? For sure, yeah, there. Everybody knows about it. You're living under a rock. Go and attend. So the boys and girls run. And... Um, and uh, they catch their, uh, their friends, and then the sun is setting, and um, 
So someone's on the force, and I she's having me shaving down now, and the bus is settling, and he starts sipping on the shaving down now, and he feels a bit hungry, and he thinks to himself, what am I doing here? There is Konefa and Bilawa and there is all the good stuff and uh, up the hill and I'm sitting here having shaved in now. so he starts running off to the kids so that he can have from the banquet and, um, and taste the, the, the Rosat Laban and the Konefa and Bilawa. And I think that this depicts a lot of us at, or maybe all of us, at one time in our life we start forming an idea about who we are and what our identity is, what we stand for, what we represent. And this identity, yes, it gets sculpted from day to day and changes from day to day, but in essence, it stays solid. And just like Goha, he said a lie and the more he said it, he started believing it, this is what we do. We say something, we get convinced with something, we persuade ourselves with something, and then not only we believe it, but we try to fulfill it. We try to live our life according to what we already said, what people have said for us. And this becomes our identity. And that's what we want to talk about today, because this is one of the strongest approaches that the devil has on every single one of us. It is using our identity against us and trying to form an identity that makes it easier for him to delve in, makes it easier for him to feed what we are trying to convince ourselves, to build this facade that will make us locked in or prisoners with him for long term. So we need to demolish this identity and see what our identity, our identity really is. So identity in essence, what's identity? Identity in essence is two things. Who am I and what I am worth? Who am I? What 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 is Rauf? When you ask yourself, somebody asks you, who are you? I was asking um, uh, some kids from uh, St. Michael's Church a few months ago, who are you? And of course, I'm a Christian. So we all know the answer, we are ready for the answer, but really in your heart of hearts, when you really look at yourself inside, what what is your real identity? Do you identify more as being a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, an engineer, a pharmacist, a diacrist, um, a servant? Sometimes being a servant itself can be a false identity. Because sometimes I'm trying to find my identity in service. Actually, there is, uh, I was talking to Emma about that, there is a, a psychological complex, it's called moratorium psychological crisis, where people are trying to absorb their personality from certain frames, and sometimes service is a frame. So I'm using service to make my identity. So who are you? This is the first question. The second question I want to ask you today, what am I worth? So when you look at yourself and you think, okay, I am so and so. What am I worth? When I look at myself, does that make me feel happy? Does that make me feel content? Does that make me feel worth it or not? And these are the two points I just want to want to discuss with you today. The first point with who I am 
the problem with identity, the problem with who you are, is that there are two approaches to that. There's two ways that you can form your identity. There is the Eastern form of thinking and there is the Western form of thinking. So the Eastern form of thinking, where I come from, when I used to go to the village uh, up in my young days, we had a piece of land in, in Upper Egypt where there was farmers and so on and so forth. You never heard much people's names. So when I used to ride the donkey and kind of go into the farms, people never asked me what my name was. You know, but I was not like a baby, I was like seven, eight years old. I could say my name. But the question was not who are you in terms of what, what is your name, child, or where do you come from? The question was what? What do you think they used to ask me? Who's your dad? Intervening. Because in up in West, not just in Egypt, in the West in, in the Eastern philosophy and culture, you are your identity is what you what your value is to the society. So who your dad is, who your grandfather is, is who you are. Your benefit to the society, your beneficial effect of your existence to your family is what makes you who you are. And the contrary is true. If you ask about a mother or a father, you don't call uh, Demiana or uh, Fauzi or uh, um, uh, Soraya. We call what? Umm Fulan, Umm Ali, Umm Muhammad, Umm Zaki, Umm Rauf, Umm Umm. So your, your value is not when you are being Soraya or Demiana. Your value is who your kids are. You look at your kids and that's where you get value from. You look at your father, that's where you get your value from. So in essence, your identity is mainly in what you mean to the society that you live in. So that's the Western approach. The East, that's the Eastern approach. Even Korea, for instance. In Korea, when you mention your name, do you know how Koreans, they say their names? They say their surname first. So I'm Makar, so people know who, what your family is, because that's the most important thing. Your name is secondary. Your family's name is primary. Oh yeah, you're Makar. Okay, then we might be able to give you a job, because you come from a good family. And this is Chinese culture as well. They say their surname first, but in Korea they say their surname first. So in the Eastern culture, your, your, your identity is who you are in the society. In the Western culture, it's exactly the opposite. They tell you, no, that's ridiculous. Don't worry about what your mom is. Don't worry about your dad is. The most important thing is who you are. And who you are is whatever you want. You identify yourself as being LGBT, XYZ. That's who you are. You try to, you pick an identity and you follow it. You feel today like uh, a man, fine. You feel today like um, uh, uh, it's, it's according what, to what you feel. What you feel is what your identity your identity, you make it. You put on the identity and you live your identity. Um, and the problem with both approaches is that both approaches is due to faith. The first approach sounds nice. Your identity is what you mean to your community. That's great. But the problem is that it puts so much pressure on you that eventually people rebel. Just like the prodigal son. He said, no, I don't want nothing of that. And even the good son 
He was rebelling, but he wasn't saying anything. And when the time came and he was put on the test, he rebelled as well in his own way. So this doesn't work, having the identity from what the family puts on you or what you achieve to get respect from the family doesn't work. On the other hand, choosing your own identity doesn't work either because it's ridiculous. Not just, I mean, we, we are uh, putting a, um, a ridiculous twist on it that it is, we're talking about uh, um, homosexuality and so on. But even if you think, now I think my identity is in this job or being a father or being a mother or feeling today like doing this. Unfortunately, what you feel is unstable. What you feel, strange, I'm probably going to talk about it in details next week when we talk about real freedom, is that you're not really free to choose how you feel. You think you're free. You think you're free. But what you think about yourself is controlled by the society around you. So for instance, 2,000 years ago, a man is walking down the street. This, this analogy say, was said by uh, one of uh, my favorite writers, Timothy Cave. He said, a man walking down the street 2,000 years ago, he um, is uh, faced with two, two, two scenarios. On one hand, there is two people fighting, and him as a prehistoric man or 2,000 years ago, he has this urge to fight, wants to go and clobber both of them. At the same time, this man has got feelings to another man walking down the street. This man will say, this is a ridiculous feeling, I shouldn't be feeling that way, and he's going to suppress this feeling, and he's going to identify himself with the action man, the hitter, the, the fighter, and he thinks, my identity is a soldier. Fast forward 20 centuries, uh, 2018 man, he's going to have these two situations, two people fighting in the street and feeling towards another man. Which feeling do you think he's going to identify with more and think that this is his true identity? Feeling to another, towards another man or feeling like hitting somebody? If he feels like he's hitting, so hitting somebody, he's going to say, I need some counseling, anger management. My real identity is I'm gay. So this identity, if you are choosing your identity or achieving your identity, it's very much sculpted by the environment around us. And that's why that answers the question, why are there so many kind of different identities that are coming up now? Because the environment is pushing for it. So we come to the question about identity. So if I cannot achieve my identity by working it, by doing stuff for the community, by doing stuff for my family, by doing stuff for my village, and I cannot choose my identity from what I think, what I feel about myself, then how can I get my identity? And here is a Christian answer. This is, this is Christ's answer. When Christ says, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant does not know what his master is doing. When Christ is calling us brothers, when Christ is calling us to call the Father in heaven our Father, he says a true identity is something that is not achieved, it's something that is what? Received. You are given an identity. He said that trying to achieve an identity never works. 
On one hand, it's very difficult to, to attain and very difficult to maintain. On the other hand, it cannot be true to yourself because you are being swayed by the environment. The only way that identity, you can be true to yourself, is when somebody says, somebody durable, somebody respectable, somebody presentable, and somebody who knows what he's saying, says, I, think, I know that you are this. And that's the beauty of being the son and daughter of Christ. That our identity as a son and daughter of Christ is that our identity is not achieved by works, by doing things, and it is received. And that's why acting our identity, acting like sons and daughters of Christ, does not depend on our performance, but depend on who we are. We are not sons and daughters because we have done this or that. We are sons and daughters, and that's why we are doing this and that. We are not praying, we're not fasting, we're not eating from the body and blood of Christ. To achieve an identity, the identity has been given to us already. We are doing all these things because of the grace of being called sons, being called brothers, being called the body of Christ. So the identity that we have is given. Second point is, what am I worth? What am I worth? The problem of worth is that either due to the environment or due to our misconception or due to our fallen nature or sometimes with all due respect to moms and dads, the way we are being brought up is that we think, actually I was discussing that with the kind of gallery group at St. George and we had this long discussion that sometimes moms and dads either inadvertently or intentionally and in some cases, intentionally, because they were discussing it with me and saying, Mom, this is the right way that you have to raise the kids up, is that your worth as a child, and then eventually you believe that this is your worth as an adult, is passed on to you from your mom and dad or from the environment, is that you're worth something based on appearance, performance, positions, and possessions. So you're worth something if you perform. If you get good grades, then you're loved. If you get uh, certain uh, A's or B's or C's, then you're loved. If you're not loved, if you don't achieve these grades, grades, then you're not really loved. Sometimes the worth is based on appearance, and this is something that we see often. If you're a bit overweight, yeah, you're not part of the in-group. If you are a little bit... Uh, um, not wearing the, the in type of clothes or the right type of things, you really kind of ostracize a bit. So it's not only your performance, but even your appearance. That's what makes you work. And sometimes it's position. If you earn certain things, if you wear a, a, ride a certain type of a car, drive some type of car, you have a certain amount of money, then you're worth something. You get kind of pushed to the front of the church, you get kind of looked at in a certain way. And position, not just possessions, but position. If you are this level in the government, or you are a counselor, or you are um, um, kind of in the parliament, you get treated in a special way. And that's why, inadvertently, from the way we've been brought up by our parents, and sometimes the community has, makes us feel that your worth is appearance, performance, position, and possessions. But Christ comes with the famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 10. And it says, the verse that we know very well, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship. He's telling us in this verse that every single one of us is God's handiwork. And the Greek word for workmanship is a beautiful word in the Greek uh, manuscript that says poema. Poema means, what does it sound like? Poem. He's saying that you are God's poem. You are his kind of uh, beautiful prose, beautiful kind of literature. Every single word in your story has been chosen carefully. And uh, Timothy Keller says something very nice. He says, just like any work of art is beautiful and valuable, and it is a reflection of the artist's soul, you are the same thing. You are valuable and you are beautiful, and you are a reflection of God's soul, your reflection of God's Holy Spirit. And that's why every single one of us trying to seek an identity worth, trying to be worth something, either by looking somewhere, or by looking somehow, or by looking in a certain way, or by attaining a certain performance, either outside the church, or even sometimes performance in church. I'm trying to find a worth, I'm trying to find an identity that is worth something, even in church, because I haven't managed to find anything outside. This quest can be so daunting, and can be so tiring, because I'm trying to be worth something. But Christ is telling us today that you are my poem. You are the reflection of my soul. You have not been created randomly. You've been created specifically for a purpose. You are my handiwork. Uh, and that's why I brought this, this uh, Potter's uh, story in Jeremiah 8, because it is exactly the same way. The Potter creates you, and even though that you have willingly chosen to go astray and destroy yourself and corrupt the creation, but Christ is continuing to remodel you to the way that he wanted you, because you, in essence, is a beautiful poem. They were asking Michelangelo, uh, he was working on, um, on a piece of rock, and they were asking, what are you doing? And he said something very nice, and you heard that before. He said, I'm trying to free the angel out of this rock. So inside the rock, he can see an angel. And he sees that he's not trying to create an angel. The angel is inside. He's trying to free this angel out of the solid rock around him. And that's us. Every single one of us is a poem that, unfortunately, looking somewhere else for value, looking value in relationship with people looking down in certain way of clothes and positions and possessions and appearance and performances. But Christ is telling us today, you are worth it because I created you. Just like when you look at, just like when you look at um, a Picasso. You look at Picasso and if it scribbles on a piece of paper that a little child can do, what is that worth, like five bucks? And you find that Picasso is worth $23 million. So what makes it $23 million is not your perception of how beautiful it is. It's far from beautiful in my eyes. It is just scribbles. But the value of the painting is due to what? Comes to what? The artist, the one who created it. Your value is not because of what you look, what you perform, and what you do, and how fast you are, and how tall you are, and how short you are, and how um, uh, um, 
much you have and what you do and how good a mess you are or served you. Your value is in who created you, who is who you are a reflection of, a reflection of Christ's soul. They, they, one of the fathers was saying that we are exactly like the, the inside look of a tapestry. Have, has anybody done cross stitches? Cross stitching? Okay, I have to admit, kind of a secret that Emma has, knows the secret. I used to do cross stitching in uh, my young days. And, uh, and if anybody has done cross stitching, I was getting in touch with my family inside. Um, the underside of the cross stitching looks horrendous. Not just mine, but they usually all look horrendous. Because it's, it's all the cut ends of the loose pieces of thread and so on and so forth. It doesn't really make sense. You can get an idea of this looks like a, um, the Eiffel Tower, but it doesn't really show that. But you turn the cross stitching to the good side, and you can see really the beauty of the cross stitching with all kind of intricate colors and 3D looks because of the cross stitching. So every single one of us is like that. Sometimes, at some point of our time, at some point of our life, we don't look like God's poem, but we are a work in progress. And Christ is still sculpting and chiseling and cleaning and pouring water on us, filling us with Holy Spirit, taking pieces away and creating us to be a vessel of righteousness, a vessel for glory. So, finally, knowing, knowing that our identity is received from Christ, not achieved, and knowing that we are worthy because we are Christ's creation. How can we be able to fight the problem of ego? So, yes, I'm a Christ Christian. Yes, I am an image of Christ. Yes, I was creating, creating the, in, in the, 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 the image and likeness of God. I still have a problem with ego. I still can overshoot this work and have an ego problem. St. Paul comes and tells us in Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, chapter 4, very interesting points about that. He was talking to people about people, of course you know the story of Corinth, it was a, a, a church that had lots of problems, lots of controversies, Paulus, Apollos, I'm for this, I'm for that, they have a problem with um, um, kind of uh, sexual promiscuity, had issues with um, uh, eating what was slaughtered for the um, uh, uh, idols and so on and so forth but one of the problems was the ego so they knew that they were created on Christ uh, God's image and likeness they knew that they are God's sons and daughters but they had a problem and that's why St. Paul was trying to address that so now that we know our identity now we know our worth what's the story of the ego how can we control that so St. Paul is telling them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. He's saying, don't be puffed up. And he's using a word that is usually not used to explain pride or ego. He's saying puffed up. And probably it's one of one or two times that he's used this word puffed up. And in the Greek kind of Roots, it's like swollen, like a, like a swollen 
inflamed organ. You know how you totally swollen, your tensors are swollen? It becomes puffed up, it becomes swollen when there's an inflammation. And St. Paul is addressing the idea of ego very nicely here. He's saying, don't be puffed up, don't be swollen, because when something is swollen, it has got what, three or four characters. Number one, it's empty. When something is swollen, so if you've got a swollen toe, it's not full of flesh, it's full of fluid. So it's empty, and it's painful. So the one who's puffed up is usually empty and painful. And there's lots of blood flow in the inflamed area, so it's busy, and usually very fragile. If you've got an abscess or a toe that is puffed up, if you just prick it, heaps of pus will come out. Very smelly pus. Just so that you can have a picture of somebody who's puffed up. So, uh, one of the Christian writers has got a very nice book. He says, uh, his name is Timothy, it's a beautiful book. It's, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's a beautiful book, a small book. So he says that whoever is puffed up, sometimes we are without even knowing, whoever is puffed up is usually empty. And one of the uh, philosophers named Soren Kierkegaard, he says that once we fell in sin and we became corrupted, we are trying to fill our identity most of the time with things away from God. And that's why our identity always stays empty. We're always empty. The puffed up person is empty. They always talk about people that are puffed up, that they sound louder because they are puffed up. They're empty inside. So the one who's puffed up is empty. But in the same time, the swollen organ is what? It's painful. The one who's puffed up is always sore. They called me. They didn't call me. They didn't ask me to come. They forgot me. They didn't ask me for the service. They didn't include me in this. It's, it's a painful existence. It's always painful to try as much as possible to be in. Always fearing of missing out. Because it's, it's a sore existence. It's always a painful existence being puffed up. It's something that it's not enjoyable. It's just like, and you don't feel it. You don't feel the ego unless it's sore. It's just like, you don't say, oh, my elbow's working fantastic today. You don't feel your elbow unless your elbow has something with it. And they say, oh, my elbow's sore. But you don't realize something unless it starts to happen. You don't say, oh, fantastic, my knee is working as good as it has been for the past 40 years. You don't say that. But when your ego becomes painful, you say, how come they did that? Why did they say they said that to me? Why have they been calling me? I didn't cut the trace for a couple of times. How did they come, they come, they not ask me to be included in the service? So being puffed up is always a painful existence. The third thing is being puffed up or being inflamed is always a busy existence. I'm trying always to rehash my image. My image is this servant or this uh, uh, Sunday school or this uh, witty person or this uh, funny person. And because, like Goha, I have believed this facade, my job every day and in every way is to make sure that this facade doesn't get touched. I always have to come up with new jokes. I always have to come up with new ideas. I always have to come up with new uh, uh, witty banter to make sure that people think, oh, he is smart, he is funny, he is a good servant, he's a fantastic deacon, she is, he is, and this is such a busy existence. We are trying as much as possible to keep the facade going on. And we are busy comparing because I do not really have an identity 
I cannot fall on back onto identity and say, this is what I am. I don't care what people think. This is who I am. I'm the son of God, and my worth is God's masterpiece. No, I'm trying to compare. Uh, I think I'm a good servant. He knows this uh, uh, bit from this. I will try to learn that because I want to be as good a deacon as he is. I'm trying to be as good a servant as he is. And we're busy comparison. And that's why C.S. Lewis always talks about comparison, that often we don't get our worth by knowing who we are. We get our worth by comparing ourselves to others. And that's how we know that we are good. Not because we are good, but because we are better than him. We are smarter than her. We are taller. We are shorter. We're always in comparison. And the puffed up, inflamed ego is always comparing. Finally, the inflamed ego is always fragile. Always fragile. Anything that affects it it's going to be disastrous. I'll read you a quote, um, and we'll see who knows who said that. It was written in Vogue magazine. That's probably the first time Vogue magazine was quoted in church. So it says it's a female. Not that the thing about females, but this happens in a female. My motive in life comes from my fear to be mediocre. This is what drives me always. But once I overcome this curse and realize that I'm a special person, instantaneously after the initial buzz, I fall back to the feeling that I am average and not interesting. Unless I do something new, very interesting. Despite that for a moment I have become special, because I've done something special, I have to prove over and over that I am more special to everybody around me. This continuous struggle in my life is the bane of my existence, and I do not believe that it will ever stop. So what do you think? Who said that? Who reads Vogue magazine? What do you think? I don't think anybody knows. I think she's in her 50s now. Well done, So that's Madonna. And you can see that from the way she acts, from the kind of the, the shock value that she gives, the stuff that she says, the stuff that she wears. She mediocrity for her is death. She has to reinvent herself. Not just her. Not just her. Every single one of us build this facade to feed the ego because we want to be special. And being special makes us worth having friends, worth people loving us, worth people befriending us, worth people spending some time with us, worth people making us part of the world. And this can be our life forever. And we cannot wake up from this high school type of existence. You know how high school people always try to show off because they want to be the center of attention? We can continue living this existence or this ideation or ideology the rest of my life. So tonight is a time where I want you to think 
who am I really? It is, it, uh, am I an identity that people want me to be, or an identity that I just think that I am, that's I feel, or identity that Christ has put on me. He, I have received this identity from him, calling me a son or a daughter. And what am I worth? Is it by my performance? Is it by looks? Is it by my gym? Is it by my weight? Is it by my um, continuously interesting? Or my worth is by the reflection of the soul of the Creator in me. And how can we achieve this balance between um, a confident ego or a confident knowledge of self and ego? St. Paul says it. St. Paul says it. So he says, of course, don't be puffed up. So he says, but with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So he's telling us, this is the solution to being puffed up. He's saying, the solution is number one. What does he say here? Don't care about what people think of me. Don't care. He's saying, it's very small thing that I should be judged by you. I don't care what you say about me. If he come good, I don't care. If he come bad, I still don't care. So this is really good. And when, he, when we come to a psychologist and tell him, I really care about uh, what people say, and I usually lose sleep because this girl told me this, or this girl, guy told me that, I really think about it. What does the psychologist usually say? Well, you usually say that. Don't care about what people think of you. Care about only what? You think of yourself. Don't they say that? So Paul says, I don't care what you guys think of me at all. And, in fact, I do not even judge myself. I don't care about what I think of myself. I don't care about you, what you think of me. I don't even care about what I think of me, what I think of myself. And then he says, For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. So this is what gives me my identity, my worth. This is what gives me a balance. I don't care about what you think. I love you, but I still don't care. And I don't care about feeling low or feeling uh, self-esteem or thinking that I'm not smart or thinking I'm not fast or thinking I'm not funny or thinking I'm not witty. I know that Christ creates me. I'm a reflection of his soul and he is the one who me. And glory be to God forever. Okay. Any uh, additions? I can see that uh, you guys are pondering. Anything? I've gone past uh, our nine o'clock uh, finish. Sorry about that. Um, tell me, any reflections, any uh, counter arguments, any uh, disagreements? No? All good? I've got a few. Tell me. Um, so you mentioned that, um, you mentioned uh, that we can't find ourselves in service. I disagree because I think that volunteering or service in general can actually help you find what you're good at and actually build on that. Um, and so that, that was one thing. Okay, so let's, let's take that one. Still no, no, thanks for picking that up. This is, um, it's a good point that you brought up. Now, what I'm saying is that service is a big ask. Okay? And with all due respect to servants and superintendents and priests, 
I do not believe that service is a remedy for somebody who's lost. Okay? So what I'm saying is that service is somebody who's filled or in the process of being filled or in the potter's hand and he has tasted and wants to share. But the problem that sometimes we do, and I am guilty as most of the older servants are, that sometimes we think, this guy is a little bit away, let's involve him in some kind of service. And then he is lost, or he's trying to find his identity. And then he's gonna come to service, trying to find his identity in service. And then service becomes his identity, and then he finds some difficulty in service, and then he becomes stumbled in service, and from service, and because of service, more the trouble that he used to have outside. So the point that I was trying to make, that yes, service is a remedy for lots of trouble. It's a remedy for um, suffering. It's a remedy for grief. It's a remedy for pain. It's a time where you can meet Christ more than anybody else. It's a time where you will be able to see Christ face to face. It's a time where you're gonna see miracles happening on a daily basis, just like the, the service that filled up the jugs in the, the wedding of Kama Galilee, which just we just celebrated. But service is not a place where you try to find your identity. I'm not, I don't know, am I a father, am I a mother, am I a doctor, I am this, I'm that, I can't find myself. Okay, let me try myself in service. And then my identity becomes a servant. And when everyone says, no, I want you to leave this class and go to that class, and it becomes a disaster. No, this is my class. Why are you taking my class from me? They love me. And then it becomes a tug of war because I'm taking away your identity, which you formed based on service. It's not by the way around. From that point, it actually becomes a Absolutely. And it becomes a, a, a stumble to the service altogether. Do, uh, do you understand? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Tell me uh, question number two. Oh, sorry. Yes. So what do you do if someone's in that position? Like you said, for example, uh, a youth or someone who maybe is younger feels a little bit lost. Like you said, involving them or forcing them into the church might not be... The no, no, forcing them into the church is, is important. And it is, it is a solution. But, so if somebody is lost, if somebody is going astray, you involve the church, you give them activities, you get involved in, involved in activity. But this activity has to be tailored so he's not stumbled by being shot into the deep end and trying to form an identity around an empty, swollen self. The identity of a servant, even a servant that is suffering failure and sin and tribulations and struggle, but identity is formed. I know who, I'm, who I am. I know who I'm worth. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm redeemed by Christ. Yes, I'm folding, but I am being renewed by, renewed by the tears of my repentance, and I'm being renewed by having the body of love of Christ. But I know who I am, and I know what I'm here for. I'm here for, I am not worthy of washing the feet of the people that I'm serving, and I am a tool that is responding, This is what a servant should be. This guy that you're talking about, the remedy for him will be involving him in the church, in the service, but it has to be a tailored job. A job like um, doing the, the soccer things, and doing things that will not be assembled to him and him falling, having a dominant effect on other servants, which happens very often in church and without mentioning uh, 
examples, it happens all the time, where people, either, either due, to our necess due to necessity, because there is lack of servants, or due to um, sometimes people wanting to find identity and kind of pushing themselves on the service. Okay, and stuff like that, we end up with trouble. So this example, I tell you that, Marco, is, uh, it's great involving every single person has to participate. Christus uh, says that we, we are a church of participants, not spectators. Unfortunately, we end up spectators. Every single one has to be a participant. But participant in what? Participant in liturgy, participant in service, participant in, in bringing people to Christ, but not forming his identity based on um, uh, service. So it's, it's hard. It's hard to... Um, if you're doing a certain service, or if I'm bringing a certain somebody struggling, we all struggle. But somebody who's away from church, and I want to bring him to church, it has to be somebody that is really a, 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 a service that has to be led by the Holy Spirit, where I can shift him from one place to the other, move him around, even do something that does not involve kind of uh, serving people on one-on-one -on -one basis until the Holy Spirit shows to the superintendents or the people that are in decision. This guy has already established himself. Not as, as that we've never, none of us established service. We are all kind of lousy servants. But established identity. He knows who he is. He knows what he wants. Sometimes, most of the time it's clear. Most of the time it's clear to the confession father. But sometimes it's clear, either positive or negative, after it's too late. And then the problem starts. Mm. What other questions? I, I, do you know that I knew him saying that identity can't be achieved, it's something that is received. What about the concept of fake it till you make it? And that is not like, you know, positive luck. So if you have someone who has generally got a negative nature, if they continually fake it till they make it in a positive way, so they're constantly thinking positive, eventually that can change and then they can become positive thinkers. What you're saying is correct, but this is still not the identity. So there's a difference between a character or a, a, a fundamental characteristic of a person and the identity. The identity, in essence, there's a very nice saying that St. John of Damascus says, he says that according to the teaching of the Holy Fathers, especially St. John of Damascus, the patristic tradition of the Rockstrock Trine is talking about the human soul, it's talking about the noose. The noose is like the core, the eye of your soul. And the Father says, especially uh, Father Miletus Weber from the Greek Orthodox Church, he says that your identity is the core, the eye of your soul. You can fake it until you make it in terms of characteristic, but still this is not Miriam. Miriam is this gem that is deep inside. This gem can sometimes be covered with a bit of dust a little bit of rust, a bit of this, a bit of that. We can polish, we can clean, but the eye of the soul inside you, this is something that was created and it's not made. And you cannot fake it, you cannot make it. It's something that was given to you. So yes, you can um, change your characteristic, change your habits, try to be smarter, try to be funnier, try to be positive, but your core is something that God has created in you. That gone astray a bit, but through the work of the hands of the potter is regaining it. So this is the eye of the soul. So it says that the rational faculty of the noetic, the noetic faculty, which is 
really your core, your identity, through the rational faculty, man related to the world with his senses. So your core identity relates to the world with two things, with two components. The rational faculty and the noetic faculty. The rational faculty is your mind or your intellect or the, 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 the characteristics of your identity that you're relating to me and the noetic faculty in which you're relating to God. And these two make who you are. And when we fell in sin, that's St. John uh, of Damascus says, when we fell in sin with our uh, nature got corrupted, a conflict took place between these two. The noetic faculty that wants to link with God all the time and your rational faculty that wants to link with the world all the time. And this is the conflict that is happening. Hmm. It still is not your identity. So this is kind of this is the reflection. It's the negative component of Miriam's question, which is the same thing. It's a, it's a beautiful question. It's a, our identity, our renewed identity, is a son or daughter of Christ. This will not change my sin. I will continue to be the son or daughter of Christ, and this is my noose. This is my inner core. This will not change. This is, I might not be aware of it. And I might behave thinking that my identity is something else. But my true identity that I need to realize, and this is the idea of performing based on identity or getting an identity based on performance. We think that my identity is based on performance. If I pray a lot, if I have frequent uh, partaking of the, the sacraments, then I will be the true son or daughter of God. And my sonship or daughtership to Christ is based on my performance. But it's not way around. Our performance should be a result of my knowledge that I am the son or daughter of Christ. So, extrapolating from that, when I realize St. Paul says something very nice in, in Hebrews chapter 2 when he was talking about uh, what Christ did for us in old chapter 1. He comes in chapter 2 and he says, all what I've told you about um, in the past few words, I want you to think often of that. And this is the English translation. Think about it or meditate on it. But the Greek word for it is obsess over. So when I obsess over the fact that I am the son or the daughter, my performance has to change. So even when I am in the middle of sin and I have this conviction and realization or ruminating or obsessing over the idea, I'm the son, I'm the daughter, this is not me. These thoughts are not me. This temptation is not me. This is not becoming of me. Then it will prevent me from continuing. So what he's saying is that if I indulge in sin, or I indulge in staying away from Christ, or I let myself drift away without paddling back, does that change my core? No, it doesn't change my core. But it decreases my 
ability to go back to the realization that that's not me. So what I'm saying is that my identity is not dependent of me being good or bad. My identity is the same. Our problem is the lack of realization of my identity. And our bad behavior, for lack of a better word, is based on my lack of realization of my identity, not the other way around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Just quickly, though, yeah, with um, Tursi and the Vedic faculty, yes. and rational, what's the like, meaning? Good question, Matthew. The rational faculty is your thinking or your emotion. Rational, as in thinking about things. So, how you behave, what you think of people, your ideas of people, how you relate to them, your friends, your family, what you want, what you want to behave like, what you achieve from life. That's the rational faculty. The noetic faculty, or noetic coming from the noose, the noose being the mind or the inner part of the heart, is the inner part of the heart that connects with God. So these are the two components of who you are, of your identity. The bit that relates to people, or to the world, or the materialistic component of the world, and the noetic component which relates to God, your spiritual life. Hmm. Then You mentioned we derive, sometimes people derive our we are from our family or from the name. From yes, yes. Abu Fulan or Abu yes. Fulan, yes. How about if you try to get away from that? Like, as in, like, you leave all that and create your own personality or your own identity away from all of that? There's nothing wrong. Okay, thanks for the question. It's a good question. It's, it's, I'll tell you about that. Number one, I've got issues with creating your identity. That's the point that we're trying to achieve today. So, create identity can be created. This is not your identity. As sons and daughters of Christ, your identity is not created. Identity is given. And because it's given, it cannot be that you're the son of Fulan or you're the father of Fulan. This is maybe your job. Maybe this is your achievement in your family. Maybe this is something that you can boast about. Maybe this is something that you can do just to help your family out. But is that your true self? Is that your true identity? I'm with you. It's not right. And you should and you should withdraw yourself from that. Not by not doing it, but by not resting to that fact that this is me. I am Ibn Fulan. I am the father of Fulan. And that's it. And that's sufficient. Because some people say, oh, and Ibn Dr. Fulan and Dr. Fulan. And that's it. I've done my, my bit in life. Like some fathers and mothers say, oh, Dar Fulan, he's my son. It's a good feeling, of course, you feel a sense of achievement. But this is not who you are. And this is not enough for you to feel that you are God's special creation, you're God's poem. Sometimes it makes us feel proud, which is fine. I'll, I'll be proud, uh, I'm proud of him, I'm proud of faith, I'm proud of my kids. This, this is a nice feeling. But is that me? I'm just a father? Am I just a father of two beautiful girls? No, this is a blessing from God. But still, not, that's not me. So I think what you're saying is that right time. I think that if we rest to the fact that we are the son of Fulan or I am the father of Fulan and this is who we are, we are drifting away from our planet. Hmm. Anything else? Oh good. So um, two to go. God willing, we said that we are uh, we, we're talking about five things that man cannot live without. Meaning, fulfillment. Identity, freedom, and hope in through partaking of the divine nature, which we're going to finish up with. So next week we'll talk about um, freedom.
Вы будете на